what I want to talk about today is um, a topic I've started to investigate and I want to very briefly sort of say how I became interested in this. But um, first of all, I will divide the talk into a sort of four section, sort of talking briefly about the larger context within um, I'm interested on sort of visions around the future of food. And uh, I bring a particular perspective to this. So I'm an STS researcher, science technology studies researcher, and I bring a particular perspective on futures and how they are being envisioned and how they are being studied by STS researchers. And I specifically focus in today's talk on a particular group of entrepreneurs who have visions for the future of food. And I will analyze uh, or present an analysis of their TED Talks, also giving you a glimpse um, into one of those talks or two, and then talk a little bit about um, how sustainability, which is what many of those focus on, is being presented and envisioned and enacted um, in food futures. So um, this talk draws extensively on a chapter that I have um, entitled Promising Sustainable Foods, Entrepreneurial Visions of Sustainable Food Futures that I have written and it has been published as part of an edited volume on alternative food politics. Um, from the margins to the mainstream is the title. Um, and it's been edited by Michelle Filipov and Catherine Kirkwood as part of a Rutledge Critical Food Studies um, book. And uh, the idea for this research came about because I have been teaching for five years now a course at the University of St. Gallen, not every year, um, and the course is entitled Food Politics, The Limits of Markets. And this is a university that is mainly focusing on teaching business and economics, political science, and law and uh, this is a sort of an elective subject that the students can take and it seems to be very popular um, but it's really interesting as a social scientist to sort of discuss these topics with business students and also policy students um, because one of the things when we were talking about often was like oh entrepreneurs could solve this was a very common answer if we talked about some of the key challenges of the contemporary food system. Or another answer would be policy needs to be implemented to change this. And I had a very hard time getting across ideas about social movements, the role of social movements, the role of alternative food networks, and so on and so forth. Not in a sort of, I'm not saying that in a critical voice, but I became very interested in how one solution for a particular group of people seems more um, interesting and relevant and others are less so. Th so this is the very, very background that made me delve into discussions uh, on the future of food, taken from that class where really those sort of debates about the future of food include a wide range of sectors and settings, people from academia, agriculture, industry, public policy, government, international organizations, media, social movements, consumer protection agencies, um, and also peasant organizations and NGOs. Um, but with sort of continuing population and consumption growth, intensifying competition 
for land, water and energy and the likely impact of climate change, these debates frequently center on the key challenge uh, so of how to feed 9 to 10 billion by 2050. This is a common scenario that is uh, sort of discussed and presented to us in various um, settings. Tim Lang and David Barling, the policy experts, have uh, written about this. This is an older paper from 2012 where they say, okay, studying the debates on the future of food and in particular how to achieve food security, um, in their socio-historical analysis, they sort of looked at the shifting meaning of food security and they also reviewed current debates how to achieve sustainable food systems. And they mainly identified two perspectives. One, uh, on the right-hand side, the agricultural production-oriented approach that stipulates food security can be achieved by producing more food. And the food systems approach here on the left that emphasizes the need to address a complex area of issues beyond production including social and environmental considerations. So in Lang and Barling's view, the agricultural production-oriented approach and the food systems approach are bounded by, quote, the basic truth that, only, that the only food system to be secure is that which is sustainable and the route to food security is by addressing sustainability. So with that sort of being very firmly established in many debates by now, um, I've become, as I said, interested in entrepreneurial responses and in particular in so-called sustainable food innovation by startups. I brought a couple along, some of you you may have come across, um, popular of course, the US version of, the, uh, of a alternative meat product, Beyond Burger, uh, sorry, Beyond Meat, Meat Burger. Um, further down here is AeroFarms producing or sort of putting in place uh, vertical farming systems that are also set to contribute to sustainable food futures. And the other examples are Swiss innovation. Of course, I'm also looking at the place where I am. So um, an insect bar by a company called Ascento. And um, this is our latest and hippest current startup, Planted Chicken. It's based on chickpea flour. It has only, as far as I know, three ingredients. And is, of course, also said to be a sustainable food innovation. The one in the middle is um, a company or startup called Eternity, also Swiss-based, and they are looking more towards software-based solutions of calculating um, uh, food miles of products and then conveying that uh, and sort of calculating the sustainability of particular meals. They're sort of offering their services mostly to the restaurant industry, so large-scale um, food production uh, and catering just to give you a bit of a flavor. So I became really interested in this, and this sort of field um, has been growing over the time that I've been studying it. So it's been about eight, 10 years, I would say, that companies in the US, but also in Europe, Asia, and other places have been emerging. Um, and they're often referred to as ag tech or food tech startups. 
um, and they range uh, from insect-based foods to alternative food companies. But if we sort of look at who says that is that they are sustainable, that sort of definition can definitely be extended, as I did here, to vertical farming and other sort of software-based solutions. So um, I come to this project by sort of focusing on this, uh, firstly in Switzerland, but also beyond, and I'm very much focusing on startups. And the question I try and ask here is, how do food tech entrepreneurs envision the future of food? I conduct interviews, do field visits to companies, um, also conduct textual and video analysis, and I will mostly speak to the video analysis based parts um, in this talk uh, today. So how do I approach this? What's sort of the perspective and the framework that I use when I try and understand uh, the question I was just posing, how food tech entrepreneurs envision the future of food? Um, I find particularly useful to sort of draw on STS research on futures. So here, for instance, um, it's about looking into versus looking at the future. As uh, Brown and Michael say, we engage with the future as an analytical object. And in a recent review of uh, the sociology of how to study futures, um, there are different, uh, Tutton has been sort of giving an overview on different perspectives of how to approach um, this topic. So more representational accounts of the future, but also, um, this has been discussed a bit more, uh, performative uh, approaches, sort of looking at the technological um, expectations, promises, and, and visions. Um, other researchers have been looking at latent futures and futures in the making, and Tatten himself um, talks about, and I think this connects also with Tess's interest, um, on how futures are enacted through material discursive device, uh, sorry, uh, material discursive practices. And uh, a quote here, so he looks at discursive dis constructions of the future uh, are not simply imaginative in the traditional sense, but are thoroughly social practices. These practices are in turn implicated in forming certain materialities and with letting loose both intended and unintended consequences. What I find is actually missing uh, from this list is another very prominent um, STS researcher who is not being cited in that article, and I'm sure many of you come across her, um, Sheila Jasanoff's work on socio-technical imaginaries, a book published together with uh, Kim, Dreamscapes of Modernity, where she defines in her contribution to that particular book the socio-technical imaginaries as collectively held, institutionally stabilized, and publicly performed visions of desirable futures, animated by shared understandings of forms of social life and social order attainable through and supportive of advances in science and technology. Um, she has, if you go through that article, a long list of attributes that she sort of also highlights about socio-technical imaginaries. Um, uh, for instance, uh, emphasizing how they're collectively held, but often originating in visions of individuals. So that could be the entrepreneurs, for instance. 
or small collectives um, and how they sort of uh, gain traction through exercises of power or sustained, act, sustained acts of coalition building. Um, and she also emphasizes that in these so socio-technical imaginaries, what is, according to her, encoded into them is um, how life ought to be lived, sort of the good and the bad, and sort of the uh, also taking up on that point in a more recent book about the ethics of innovation that she has also um, been written. Um, I could go on and on and on and say more about the social technical measures, but the point I wanted to make here really is that it's an, an additional resource to draw on to understand these future making and these imaginaries and promises out there. But what I'm particularly interested in is this connection of how um, the role of promises and expectations, but also um, visions of the future, how can they, uh, how are they, or can they be conceptually be thought through in their connection to market making? So how markets are being made, uh, and, and specifically around innovation. And because all of the items and companies I showed you earlier, um, they are in highly innovative, they say, and these products haven't been out there before. So there is also quite a bit of literature I draw on here, um, mostly from the sociology of expectations, um, and really trying to tease out this connection between imaginary visions and how markets are being made. Um, just to sort of reinforce the points that they, or the questions that they're asking, what role do these promises play in, in the enactment of markets? As what a couple of researchers from Beckert, uh, Pollock and Williams and others are asking. And um, what, are, what is the role of these expectations, promises and visions? It's sort of to be generative, to mobilize resources, bridge and, bridge and mediate across different um, boundaries. And as uh, Paul Martin has been saying in his research on a very different topic, but I think uh, the general sentiment can be taken, uh, is that there's sort of like expectations play um, actually multiple performative roles uh, in, in helping construct uh, new industries, uh, commodities and markets through this work of promissory enterprises that create forms of value that rest on expectations. So quite a bit of literature to draw on, uh, not necessarily uh, here on food. But having said that, there's of course also others that have started to look at food innovation and also this particular space and have uh, analyzed the role of technological promises in food innovation. Um, just to sort of give you a bit of background, uh, who else is researching here and interested? Um, for instance, um, Stevens, um, Nina Stevens and colleagues have been studying um, this field. Um, my emphasis currently here in this review on texts and um, visual uh, um, uh, documents, but of course there's they have also done other kinds of methodological forms of conducting research in this field. So for instance, they here are texts that are focusing on texts and images of in vitro meat. This is Stevens and Rufenkamp. And for instance, in one of their articles in 2016, they've emphasized that the textual narratives um, assert environmental health and innovation benefits of 
in vitro meat technology versus the images suggest that it will resemble familiar forms of meat. So sort of pointing out the also slightly differences in the visual and in the sort of textual um, display of this food innovation. Then um, Deborah Lupton, sociologist from uh, Australia, has also studied food, food innovation, and, and she looked at 3D printed food technologies and looked at online news media reportage and tried to understand the sort of promises entailed of in 3D printing and what, how the press is reporting about this. And she emphasizes it's in this analysis she conducted, it was mostly five promissory themes, that it's futuristic, it's creative, um, healthy, efficient, and sustainable. So here the sustainable is also very prominent. And she also draws very much uh, on uh, Sheila Jasanov's work of the social technical imaginary and argues that promissory themes play an integral part in contributing to broader social technical imaginaries, working to see specifically outline and define the potentials of new technologies. Others who've looked into technological promises and food innovation are Fuentes and Fuentes and Alexandra Sexton and colleagues. So for instance, uh, Fuentes and Fuentes have been looking at analysis of marketing vegan substitutes. Um, and they sort of looked at the role of digital media packaging stores um, to sort of alternativize and uh, conventionize, I hope I pronounce this somewhat correctly, uh, vegan products. And they've also sort of emphasized this uh, focus on material and discursive construction of vegan products, this sort of focus on sameness and difference in the construction of vegan products compared uh, to other products. And then uh, Alexandra Sexton, who has been researching alternative um, protein for a longer time, citing one of her most recent articles. She's also in the back of this room, so a wave. <laughs> She's been studying promises uh, of these alternative proteins and has been emphasizing that and there's a couple of very prominent or sort of very distinctive promises around them. For instance, that it's emphasized that they create healthier bodies, that they're able to feed the world, that they're good for animals and the environment, uh, their control for sale, and their tastes like tastes like animal. At the same time, what she's been doing, she's not only been looking at um, the alternative um, um, protein companies exclusively of how they sort of tell the stories about their products, but also about those uh, in the conventional livestock farm sector and how they sort of respond uh, to these promises and also where are the sort of like critical intersections uh, between them, sort of giving you a bit of a bigger background on the sort of conceptual frameworks that I'm drawing on. And let's move into the sort of um, companies that I've been looking at. I'm just giving you a quick overview. So um, these are the Swiss startups, for instance, I've been looking at. You've seen some of the um, examples on the earlier slides. So this is um, Urban Farmers and a Comba Group. They're both into sort of um, vertical farming systems um, 
Ascento, you've seen the insect bars, but they also have other insect-based foods on the market by now. And Eternity was the software-focused company. And uh, then there's, there, there's more, of course, but I just want to give you the sort of flavor of those that I've been following for quite some time. And in the US, again, more illustrative in the sense of there's many, many more, and these are not um, the only ones. Uh, similar um, startups focusing on sustainable food innovation, again, in the alternative protein area with uh, insect-based foods, um, but also vertical farming. And I've sort of selected them specifically on their claims and promises around sustainability. And what made me specifically interested in looking at TED Talks, um, I'm don't know if you're sort of super familiar with them. Most likely they are very popular. I'm getting told by my students all the time. Um, so TED Talks are so-called technology education and design talks. It's an organization that posts talks online and the slogan they have is it's ideas worth spreading. It's a format that combines very strong visual presence and also uh, very strong engaging narratives and I'm sure you've seen them on maybe other topics than food innovation um, but I've become quite interested in them in the sort of how they change also our expectations about what is a good talk and um, how a good talk needs to be sort of prepared and set up so when I looked around what sort of research is out there and for instance um, Ketrovitz and Taylor have been arguing in 2013 that they're really contributing to transforming the rhetorical culture and shifted expectations and norms associated with orality and public presentation. Um, many of these talks, I should add, is, are independently organized. Then if you see like TEDx, it's always an independently organized version of the TED Talks. Um, and TED Talks have been, or TED Conferences, the official ones, have been studying in 1984 um, and they've been running annually since 1990. And um, as Matiello points out, there are sort of three aspects to TED Talks, if you sort of do a bit of a deconstructive reading of them. Um, they reduce technicality in both content and vocabulary, no scientific jargon allowed. Um, secondly, uh, there's sort of an informal register and conversational or humorous tone to them versus sort of like a serious and um, academic talk. Uh, and third, uh, the preference for narrative compared to other formats such as um, informative, expository or argumentary types of talks. Um, so this is just a quick overview on some of how I sort of collect these talks and the things I note down about them. And methodologically, I'm using this uh, thematic narrative analysis to sort of understand the conditions of storytelling and their effects. And the questions that I'm sort of focusing on when I analyze these talks are how is food innovation described? and portrayed in entrepreneurs' TEDx talks, which qualities of the food innovation are emphasized, and which expectations and promises and imaginaries 
are present. And to sort of give you a bit of a flavor of what they look like, especially related to food innovation, I brought, uh, a, fingers crossed it works, a TEDx talk organized uh, in Zurich in 2011. I've got also a version of an American setup. I'm not sure if we have enough time for that, but I at least want to give you a bit of a flavor of what they are like. Um, quick note, Urban Farmers is out of business by now, but they've been one of the first food uh, tech startups in Switzerland and they've been very hyped. They've been good in doing that. Um, just sort of as a mental note that currently they're no longer in the business. But nonetheless, the talk is quite illustrative of the format and of being one of the very first food tech startups in Switzerland trying to also tell a particular narrative. Uh, probably, hang on. About a year ago, can you hear it? I decided to become a farmer, an urban farmer. And as Tim mentioned, I had nothing to do with agriculture in my previous life. And about all the things I could have possibly imagined doing in the future, farming was not one of them. Topic of today, urban farming. There, I think there's reason, there's reason why farming can have a more prevalent, a more promising future. First of all, we'll be nine billion people pretty soon. And something happens, something more important happens. 70% of us, the majority of us, will live in cities. So it could make a lot of sense growing food where people are going to live in the city. But most importantly, we will be so many more people. We need about 100% more food from today to tomorrow. 100% more. Now, some people say, this is the most efficient system, this is the most, the current system, the cheapest system, this is how we do it. But I have to ask you, now as a farmer, fellow farmer, how much, how much money are you making? And you're using all this fossil fertilizer, which is made out of oil, and we know what's gonna happen to oil. Using all these pesticides and fungicides and herbicides, using all this water and all this fuel for transportation. I mean, did you know that the vegetables you buy in your store have traveled on average 2,000 kilometers before they get into your store? How can that be efficient? And efficient to whom? Maybe to the transportation industry, but certainly not to the farmer and certainly not the consumer and certainly not the environment. Not surprisingly, if we look at our overall footprint, the way we consume food today weighs the heaviest on our total environmental footprint. Food is more important than housing, energy, or water, or private transportation. It's the biggest impact on your environmental footprint. So small differences can already have a huge impact on this scale. Now, there are already a lot of people who are farming in the city. It's not a new phenomenon. Look at this picture here. This is taken from a farm in uh, Brooklyn. And you're looking out from the rooftop of a building into Manhattan. And on this farm, P 
people are farming. They're farming their own food. You can buy it downstairs in the shop. There are other more creative ways to farm, right? Like this, I love these guys, truck farm. All right, so honey, please hop into the car, but don't crash the salads, right? Nothing to eat. We were asking ourselves, how can we make, how can we hack ourselves into the city? How can we put farming on the urban Google map? And we could start by taking this parking lot, all right? And we could say, all right, so instead of the upper level, the 40 parking lots that we have on this building, let's put that into a greenhouse. And instead of the 40 parking lots, we could grow now food for 500 people, year in, year out. So those 40 of you who took the car to work, take the bus, we'll grow now food. This could be important. Of course, there, there are many approaches to this, and, and I think we need to look at solutions that are really productive and scalable, etc., and have all the means to actually achieve something. So, as I said, about a year ago, I discovered that there are farmers in the city using new, innovative technologies, which would allow them to grow food without soil. I said, food without soil, how can you grow without soil? Well, apparently it's possible, and some even used a technology called aquaponics, which allows them to grow fish and vegetables in a closed loop system. Now basically this is a technology, and by the way, this comes out of a research lab in Wedenswil, of all places, Wedenswil, the Harvard of vegetable growers, they have developed this kind of stuff. So here it goes, the fish basically provide the nutrients for the plants, okay? So the fish, feces, and urine, basically is used as organic fertilizer for the plants. And the plants basically, they take up these nutrients and they filter the water and they clear the water and release it back to the fish. So it's a natural symbiosis between fish and plants. Now I brought one of these farms here and you can see what you can grow. You can grow salads, you can grow herbs, you can grow all kinds of vegetables, you can grow tomatoes, peppers, aubergines, melons, you name it. The, fish, the, the, the system is very resource efficient. We use about 90% less water than conventional agriculture, have everything in a closed loop, so it's very resource efficient, and we lose literally little waste. So at the beginning, people asked me, well, Roman, do these fish wear any nanosensors? I said, no, no, they're not. Um, but what are you gonna do, Roman, with the fish? When you harvest the fish, what are you gonna do with the fish? It's very easy. We eat them. Think about this, the freshest produce directly from your roof onto your plate. I mean, you're gonna have fish harvested just minutes ago on your plate from the roof. How great is that? Ocean's overfished, now we're bringing the fish into the city. Of course, uh, if you're looking at it, say, okay, how can we scale this? How can we present this to people? We started by building miniature farms, small, urban farms. We're using recycled cargo containers and greenhouses. So on top, you would have the vegetables inside the, the cargo container. You would have the fish. And really what we want to do here is prove the point that this is about self-sufficiency. A, a family of three can basically live on vegetable and, and protein consumption of a box like this. So, you know, small communities, schools, restaurants, 
groups of people can go get together and grow their own food. But our vision and our aspiration is of course to still provide large quantities of food, urban farming. So we're setting out these projects, and this is actually a real project which we're looking at currently in the city of Basel. And it's a small project, a pilot project. While already there, we can grow about five tons of vegetables and about 800 kilograms of fish year in, year out on an otherwise vacant rooftop. It's about food for 100 people. And as we did this, this study and this project, we found out that in the city of Basel alone, there's two million square meter of idle rooftop space. And using just 5% of that would yield harvest for 40,000 people. So it's a lot of potential to grow food in the city. I'd like to close with, with three remarks. First of all, the time is right. I think we need to consider food security. Secondly, we are at the tipping point. The environment is cannot be scaled anymore. We need to think of solutions that are better. And thirdly, we can grow food in the city. So next time you see one of those empty rooftops in your city, imagine what it would be like to produce fresh food in the city, like good food from the roof. Thank you very much. Okay, just to give you a bit of an impression of this kind of talk and how they're staged. As you see, they have been on a stage, there's a clock counting, and so on and so forth. Um, I might also briefly skip into uh, the American version of another startup by uh, Bitty Foods. I won't play the full version because I'm conscious of the time, but I think it's uh, interesting to sort of also see how a startup focused on insect-based foods presents itself and I hope that you will see some similarities that I will draw out later in my conclusion. Um, this is from 2014. When you hear crickets chirping, what do you think of? Warm summer nights, grassy fields, the awkward silence that happens when a joke falls flat. When I think of crickets, I think of the future of food. Because I eat crickets almost every day in the form of baked goods like this, which I made from cricket flour. It might be difficult for a lot of people to consider eating whole insects, but they become a lot more manageable when they're in this format. This is cricket flour, which I make from whole insects that are dried and milled into a fine nutty powder. And it's packed with nutrients. It has healthy fats, vitamins and minerals, and around 70 grams of protein per serving. And I'm in pretty good company when it comes to eating insects. This dish that you see right here is served at Noma in Copenhagen, which has been named the number one restaurant in the world for the past several years. We could even say that crickets are on the cusp of becoming trendy. In my previous life, before I started Biddy Foods, I was a trend forecaster and consumer researcher in the media and technology industries. And looking through the lens of a trend forecaster, I see a powerful shift happening in the way that people think about food. People are more interested in sustainability than ever before and understanding where their food comes from, which is why we're all here today. And thanks to the internet, we're constantly being exposed to new trends and ideas and even new cuisines. 
like this 3B salad from chef David George Gordon. You may already know some of the reasons why eating insects is a good idea. By the year 2050, there will be an additional 2 billion people on the planet. And economists say that we are unlikely to have the food resources to feed everyone. We are facing a global food crisis. And our current agricultural production will not scale to feed 9 plus billion people. Economists say that by the year 2050, meat will become a luxury product. In their direst estimates, beef will be priced like caviar. It will be a, a rare luxury for many of us, and for many, many more of us, it will be completely unattainable. Okay, I want to sort of stop here. I'm pretty sure you can find it online if you're curious to see how it all unfolds. Um, so what are the stories that they're these entrepreneurs are telling us what are the promises that they're making. Um, I want to just point out a few things because I could talk for another half hour about this, but I will not. Um, so what I think what we see here is a sort of like a setting of the stage and in both talks you see it very nicely that they set the stage with the question of how to feed the world. And bringing about this or sort of citing this scenario that the food system is broken, which I think we can probably all agree on beyond the startup world. Um, but then they staged their answer. And that answer, um, you know, sounds also first compelling, you know, disruption, reinvention, something has to change. I think we probably also sort of feel, you know, that that, that is the case. Um, but it is really interesting, of course, then to look in a bit more detail how that change is sort of being proposed and how their specific products are then being framed as sustainable and also how they will sort of contribute to saving um, or making the f uh, or feeding the world, as they often refer to. So how is this done? This is often done in terms of um, the tone, how they set uh, in these particular talks, but also the sort of like personalization, they sort of try and get us into the sort of situation to think about it. Um, they use a lot of statistics, I think, that came through in both talks to sort of create the problem and also showing how it could be resolved. Um, a lot of images, sometimes um, not in these talks, videos, um, effective storytelling as TED Talks are supposed to do. Um, a lot of imagine, being in, things like that. And I'm talking now across all the other videos I've also uh, had a chance to analyze uh, what we feel like. And then sometimes you also have uh, cooking and tasting sessions added uh, towards the end of some of the other talks um, present. So um, what does it tell us about um, how these food entrepreneurs enact sustainable food futures. So based on what I've been analyzing, I would suggest and be happy to discuss with you um, that these entrepreneurs uh, in their TED Talks sort of do publicly performed visions of desirable food futures, desirable from I would say their vantage point, but it is there's a very strong sort of presentation of how that is also desirable for us, 
the audience, that hence I use the sort of staging element uh, prominently. Um, while the question, how does it connect to the imaginary literature that I've been talking about, uh, I guess, and others uh, before me in other sort of research contexts have been arguing, the rise to some visions like these, to the status of an imaginary, really depends on whether it's adopted by the community. And I hope you see how important then this staging and the repetitive giving of these kind of talks and actually the sort of replaying via social media is actually quite helpful rather than sort of giving a one-off talk at one occasion. Um, so it's a really important way, I would argue, to spread these visions, to help them rising to a certain status, to enact an issue public, um, sort of get people behind you, sort of supporters um, of various kinds. I'm thinking here of consumers, but there's other constituencies that you could think of. Um, so here, as for instance, potential markets, potential consumers, um, and also that helps with institutionally stabilizing that imaginary. Um, and um, this is an idea I've been talking about uh, before with Corinne, as sort of thinking about these TED Talks as liminal spaces where there's this mixture of information, education, entertainment, advertising and provocation, and how that is ideally uh, suited to sort of creating these imaginaries and stabilizing them again within a, a media environment of social media. Um, well, uh, adoption and mainstreaming depends um, uh, of these narratives uh, is, is important from their point of view. And I would sort of, I'm tempted to sort of argue, and I've argued that in the book chapter, that what we see here is a form of entrepreneurial activism with a very strong focus on efficiency. I, of, especially in the Urban Farmers uh, video, I think you've seen how uh, this has been priced as an efficient, water efficient uh, system for growing food, also the interlooping of this aquaponic system. Uh, it's also economically efficient because it saves cost. And um, I would really argue this kind of entre entrepreneurial activism um, really specifies what counts as food sustainability and how we can measure food sustainability. And I would also like to highlight um, that it draws extensively on visions promoted of, um, by alternative food networks, but are then rendered commercial versions of some of these uh, visions that alternative food networks have. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.